2.3 million deaths a year from work-related accidents or diseases. How can we get serious about improving working conditions in offshore factories? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. business world certainly doesn't lack for companies that profess to care how their manufacturing partners are treating their workers. Nor is there a lack of supplier codes of conduct and strict human rights standards by major multinationals. Somehow, though, those efforts aren't getting the job done. We still see regular reports of suppliers engaging in practices such as child labor, dangerous work environments, excessive overtime, and wages far below what anyone would consider fair. There's a definite need for additional action. My guest today is Pierre-Francois Thaler, co-founder and CEO of Ecovatis, a company that focuses on improving sustainability, labor practices, and corporate social responsibility throughout the global supply chain. He'll talk about recent efforts by the European Union to jumpstart sustainable business practices and better working conditions. And he'll explain why that initiative is likely to fall short of its goal. Let's discuss what companies really need to do to solve the problem. Here is my conversation with Pierre-Francois Thaler. Well, Pierre-Francois Thaler, welcome to the program. Hi, Bob. Glad to be here with you today. I want to start by asking you about the G7 or Group Group of Sevens Vision Zero Fund. Can you tell me exactly what that is? It's an announcement which came after a G7 meeting uh, last July in, in Germany, where you know, President Obama and Angela Merkel and the other G7 leaders, they issued an in- interesting uh, statement on responsible supply chain and you know, confirming that you know, they thought the G7 uh, countries needed to take much more uh, ambitious steps in order to address environmental and social issues in the in the supply chain. And and that followed, you know, in particular what happened in uh, you know, Rana Plaza, maybe I'm sure you know, where in, in two years ago, you know, building collapsed and factory in the apparel sector and 1,200 people died pretty. That was the Rana Plaza factory complex in Bangladesh. Exactly, which yes. triggered quite a big uh, suite of... Uh, you know, decisions and uh, engagements of companies which were involved uh, or were having subcontractors involved in this uh, major uh, major accident. So one of the one of the tools which I, which has been announced is this Vision Zero Fund, which is a fund which will aim to both provide you know prevention and uh, remediation in terms of you know workers health and safety and working conditions in uh, emerging countries. So, you know, the idea is to have some, uh, you know, access to some financial support in order to be able to to address and prevent some of those uh, issues from happening. This amounts to what, about 3 million euro? Is that correct? That's where I think there's a bit of a gap between the very ambitious zero vision, which is zero accidents, and the amount of the fund. So uh, Europe pledged... 3 million to the fund, Germany, uh, 3 million as well. I think the U.S. committed 1 million. 
but of course, you know, you have to relate this to the you know, 2.3 million fatalities happening due to working conditions uh, every year, and uh, and the billions and billions of dollars those working conditions has impact on the, on the global economy. So that's a great idea. Uh, I think it's very new announcement, and you know, we have yet to see some of the mechanism. But that there is from the, from the outset, there is clearly a bit of a gap between the financial resources and the major problem this fund is uh, planning to address. Well, I I do want to address what you feel about the Zero Fund and how it might be improved upon, but I'm just curious as to how would that money be spent exactly? The mechanism has not been been defined yet, so I think this will be announced in the the coming weeks, uh, neither in terms of uh, growth of the fund or whether, neither in terms of uh, which countries will be the, the focus. So a lot of this has been uh, still has to be be announced. What we know is that the ILO, you know, the International Labor Organization, will be you know managing uh, managing this fund, but they are you know they are still in the process of defining the real uh, operating uh, mechanism. Mm-hmm. So you feel that the Vision Zero Fund is inadequate to address the problem? Do you not? If so, why? I think the the Vision Zero is uh, adequate. <laughs> And uh, and uh, yes, and a lot of lot of uh, you know major global corporations have been setting you know zero targets for you know fatalities and have been you know, for many of them being successful to achieve. So I, I think there is a gap in the fund uh, you know, resources, and and there might be better ways to address this uh, issue. So if if you look at the trillions of dollars which are spent by global multinationals. There is a way for those multinationals in giving a better, uh, or giving more weight or more importance to, you know, working conditions and health and safety for their suppliers and, and subcontractors and so on. There is a way to have a much more massive impact when, when global corporations, and we see many of them engaging into this, starts to put higher requirements, give preference to suppliers and, and contractors who are committing to better practices. This can have an, an effect, which is a you know, magnitude of 100 or more compared to what this, uh, the resources this uh, fund will have. Well, now, even before Rana Plaza, there were a number of major global 500 companies that were stepping up with supplier codes of conduct that at least claimed publicly to care about this issue, that had written into their contracts with suppliers requirements that suppliers follow certain rules of conduct in terms of working conditions. And yet, Rana Plaza happened. After Rana Plaza, a number of companies, especially apparel companies, have banded together with their own efforts, supposedly to address this problem. So where did those earlier efforts fall short? Why did they not work? Why did we have Rana Plaza anyway? And do you feel like current efforts promise to be any better? So I think if you really want to address this challenge, you need, you need to have a three-step process. The foundation is indeed, you know, having codes and super code of conduct and, and policies and, and many, many companies have those policies now, but, you know, the, the code by itself will not do much. The second step is to implement auditing mechanism, compliance mechanism, and we see with, you know, huge ramp up in the past years in the number of audits and in the number of, uh, you know, verifications performed by companies. But even this is not enough, and, and and we saw last week, for example, uh, you know, Apple and Pegatron and one of their major subcontractors being, uh, you know, accused by Chinese NGOs of using uh, children. So the third layer is really to uh, embed those 
health and safety and working condition practices in the management systems of suppliers and subcontractors. If it's only a compliance exercise, if it's only a past the audit exercise, it's very difficult to make it sustainable. Whereas when suppliers and subcontractors start to implement management systems and try to address root causes of those problems, there we can uh, we can see lasting improvements and we can expect to see more in the systemic change. It seems like a lot of the problem has to do with the multi-tier nature of supply chains. For instance, there were a number of companies that had what they considered to be solid agreements with factory producers that they would follow these rules, and yet it ends up getting subcontracted out so that the original manufacturer doesn't know that its stuff is being made. Like, like Some of these companies had no idea, their pro- supposedly had no idea their product was being made at Rana Plaza. So how do you address that issue where you have these multiple stages where you might make a, an effective agreement at one tier, and then they'll turn around and subcontract, and they'll turn around and subcontract maybe four or five or six levels up the, up, up the supply chain, and all of a sudden you have no visibility of what's going on. So you're right. What, what's very specific with the CSR risks or CSR challenges is the fact that you have this, you know, it will cascade through the, the CPA chain and the ultimate brand could be held responsible for what's happening, uh, you know, five tiers uh, below. So what we see happening now and maybe next stage is we see different sectors engaging into this type of initiative. So it started, of course, with the retailers and you know, fast-moving consumer goods, which are more, much more exposed to end users and consumers. But we see now you know, companies in the, you know, in the packaging sector engaging to some type of initiatives, companies in the cement industry, companies in the, in the chemical industry. So we see much more, you know, there is a cascade, and it takes time, of course. But what we have seen happening in the past uh, in the two or three years is the same type of initiative being launched not only by the B2C companies, but by the much the more you know the companies that are the lower tier of the of the supply chain. What are you some of your suggestions? You have spoken, I guess, about the need to better motivate suppliers to get on board with some of these rules. What would you suggest we do? I would say two things. The, the, the first one is when it comes to uh, auditing suppliers and assessing suppliers is moving from a compliance mindset and past the audit mindset to a process which is geared at building capabilities of suppliers and helping suppliers build you know management systems. If we do you know if we do a parallel with a with the quality, you know you you can fix the quality of a specific uh, batch of products, but unless you implement a robust you know, quality management system, you know, problems will keep, will keep occurring again and again. Second thing is, from a supplier or from a vendor perspective, all these requirements of companies are today quite often uh, more of a hurdle and more of a challenge than an opportunity. And what we see now is we see the most advanced companies who are saying, not only we need to penalize suppliers who are not performing, but we need to reward suppliers who are more advanced, like and some of the companies we work with or some of our customers, they are integrating sustainability in their tender process or RFP process. You know, they are giving a specific, specific weight now to the sustainability performance of vendors so that companies who are more advanced you know, have a better chance of you know, being awarded the contract and it's it's not only you know, it's not only a stick, but they are looking also at the, the carrot and incentives which can be provided for CPA years to really uh, you know advance their practices. 
But it seems like in terms of incentives, the natural incentive is that if you are a supplier of mine and you are following those rules, the only thing I hold over you as an incentive is my continued business. That is part of supplier codes of conduct today. And it does suggest that even though those incentives have existed up to this point, I mean, companies like Apple and a number of apparel companies have these incentives built into their codes of conduct. And yet, once again, they don't necessarily seem to work. And I'm just yes. wondering, where is the disconnect there? Oh, you're right. You know, being, uh, you know, being, uh, being the code as a condition to be qualified as today or the first level. But we see, you know, we work with a company in Europe, for example, uh, Schneider Electric, and they've implemented a robust program where in order to be qualified as a strategic vendor for Schneider Electric, you need not only to meet the basic acceptance criteria, but you need to demonstrate you know, year after year that you know, you're improving on your you know, CSR management systems. And so it's not only a, a question of being qualified as a potential vendor, it's a question of being considered as a strategic vendor and you know, being part of this strategic vendor group where only 500 or 1,000 superiors can be, is of course associated to other benefits and you know, larger business awards and so on. So mm-hmm. you, you can have different levels. Companies can do more than just saying, we will not do business with you if you don't meet the basic requirements. You know, companies can also reward superiors who are you know, more engaged and are really implementing robust, uh, robust systems to prevent accidents from happening in the future. Of course, good intentions aren't the entire answer, I would, I would suspect. How do you enforce these rules once they've been agreed to by the supplier? No, it's a good point, and and, and the, to, the challenge companies are facing is really in the in the monitoring part because quite often companies are quite good at doing a robust assessment at the initial qualification stage, you know, the day they were the initial contract. But you need to be able to implement a system where you will monitor year after year and month after month that the evolution of practices of companies. So you know, more and more we work with companies. We are not looking at this as a one-off exercise, but we are looking at having same way they have quality metrics, same way they have uh, regular financial uh, metrics. They are looking at having uh, you know an ongoing monitoring process to measure the improvements or to measure the you know environmental and social practices of company of suppliers you know, year after year. But you're not relying on the supplier necessarily to report on themselves exclusively. I would think you would need to be engaging in site inspections of the suppliers' facilities on a regular basis as well, right? Of course. In the case of the you know the process and the platform which is provided by Covedis, what what has been really useful is actually a third part well, third type of information is we are data mining and we are collecting every day information from thousands of specialized NGOs and special information sources and and we see more and more information being available now uh, on a daily basis provided by you know, specialized agencies or specialized uh, or NGOs in China. And you can, you can get a lot of uh, insights if you're able to you know, access in real time to all the, all the information which are provided by those stakeholders. And so that's a new source. That's a new type of information beyond, of course, self-reported information from superiors, beyond audit reports and audit on-site audits, which falsified or can be uh, gamed in some uh, some cases. The good news is today, you know, like uh, social medias and uh, and specialized NGOs, you know, are providing more and more information on, on superiors over the planet. So providing you have the right tools to data mine all this flow of data, 
you can get real time, uh, you know, real time uh, or ongoing monitoring of uh, you know your vendors' practices on a global basis. I imagine those uh, site visits would be, to a large extent, unannounced, right? Is that important that you show up without telling your supplier you're coming? Uh, more and more, they are, and it depends on you know depends on sectors. You know, you have, you have sectors where it's uh, it's not a de facto standard as uh, you know. In the apparel sector, for example, you have, you have sectors where you have more, it's more difficult to, uh, to set up this way. But whether it's earnings audits, whether it's uh, audits where you also um, try to capture feedback of uh, workers through innovative technologies and using mobile phones and so on, you, you, have, you have new techniques that are available to try to, to go beyond this one of the slides and have a more you know, ongoing monitoring of parts of, uh, of the vendor looking at the uh, some monitoring groups go so far as to engage in undercover investigations of factory conditions. Is that an important aspect? Is that a good source or an important source of of status information? It's needed in some cases. You know, we've, we've seen it in uh, we have some specific topics like uh, you know, production, for example. We have to really understand you know, the type of uh, activities and, and, and particular you know, specific countries, yes, you, you need to go and you need to go even, even deeper than doing uh, you know, an announced audit. So you have multiple structures, you have multiple sources of information, and the, the real challenge for the global internationals is being able to capture all those data points in a system, in a scorecard, which still will be easy to manage, ready to understand for certain action levels or for particular managers. So, so yes, you should not rely just on one approach. You should not rely certainly on the just having your vendor signing your credit card, and this is not enough. But you need to, you know, make sure that you can uh, aggregate all those uh, all those data points in a system which will be easy to understand and simple enough for uh, for category managers and buyers who have plenty of other topics to to look at, as you know. Does the G7 have a role to play, or the United Nations, or any other type of multilateral group? I think the G7 and the governments in Europe and the US are. Can do a lot of things, and they can, uh, and in particular, you know, they are implementing on new regulations. And uh, beyond this fund, you also have uh, development of new regulations in in the US and Europe. Uh, you know, the UK implemented in October the you know, UK Modern Slavery Act, which is looking at you know specific issue of forced labor incubation. France, my own country, is going to release a very ambitious global supply chain due diligence regulations, mandating corporations to really have a due diligence system covering environmental and social topics. We see also developments in, in the U.S. on the you know, false level topics on human rights. So um, all over the place, you know, we see regulations being made more robust, and that's, of course, an important driver for, uh, for global multinationals. We are just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you one other question on a more personal level, and that is, how did you get interested in this topic yourself of CSR? I spent 15 years working in procurement and supply chain, and my last job with a, with a you know, U.S. software company called Arriba, now SAP, where we're operating a big superior network to connect buyers and superiors. And, and discussing with a number of chief procurement officers in Europe, I, uh, I understood that it was an emerging topic, which was, you know, not only financial performance and logistics and so on, but, uh, you know, environmental and social performance. And, and uh, I found out that there was both a uh, very interesting entrepreneurial uh, 
agency, but also an, uh, an opportunity to, as I said, to put you know procurement and supply chain at a better better use or uh, or leverage you know procurement and supply chain in order to try to improve uh, not only process efficiencies and costs, but uh, you know environmental and social uh, conditions uh, globally. So, and I think you know supply chain professionals have a very important role to play. Uh, the, the leisure they have to drive improvements on a global basis on this topic is, uh, is quite often under, underestimated, and uh, that's made all jobs or you know the role of having the procurement situation professionals even more interesting. Well, it's an, uh, it's a subject of such great importance, and there's so much at stake. So, uh, Pierre Francois Thaler, I want to thank you so much for helping us to understand a new perspective on this issue and some of the possible solutions out there to ensure sustainability, better working conditions, corporate social responsibility in global supply chains. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks a lot, Bob, and uh, yeah, looking forward to our next uh, discussion. That was my conversation with Pierre-Francois Thaler of Ecovatis, talking about what business must do to improve sustainability and working conditions in global supply chains. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.